Any of you paying attention to uh, the baseball playoffs right now? You will almost never hear me give sports metaphors from the from a sermon. I know that is such a cliche thing for pastors to do. I will almost never do that unless we are in the playoffs. And then I just have to ask your apologies because I have my whole life only ever loved one sport truly, and that's baseball. I've loved watching it. I've loved reading about it, talking about it, and most of all, playing it up until I busted my ankle uh, maybe 10 years back or so. I used to play every week still. Um, to those of you who say that baseball is too slow, I say to you that maybe the problem is that society is too fast and we need a reminder to calm down a little bit. For those of you who say that it is boring, I say unto thee that you just don't understand the strategy behind it. You don't get that this is a, an amazing chess match between the, the pitcher and the batter and the catcher and the coaches and that every single player in the field at any given moment has in their mind a preparation of what they will do in about 90 different situations and has to then act on it in a split second that just looks like, oh, it's just some people running around. But really, these people are like chess masters. For all of my love of this game, there is one aspect, though, that I still kind of struggle with, and that is when I am trying to teach the game to somebody who has never really played before and doesn't understand the rules. <laughs> like you, sure. But like, I used to organize wiffle ball games in college. We would play in... Uh, the parking lot of the train station at night. And it was always a ton of fun, right? And there were always somebody there who had never really played before and didn't really know the rules. But at first, the rules seemed very simple, right? You throw the ball, you hit the ball. If uh, you get to first base without being tagged, you're safe. If they tag you, you're out. If you get swing three times and miss, that's strikes, you're out. You get around the bases, that's a run, that's a point. This is very simple, right? And so inevitably what would end up happening would be somebody would come in and play for the first time. They've got this awkward little swing thing happening, but they would somehow manage to hit the ball and make it to first base without getting tagged. And like, yes, I did it. I did the thing. I'm playing the game. And then the next person would come up and hit the ball and they would tag second base. And we'd be like, well, you're out. And they'd be like, wait a second, what? They didn't tag me. And then you have to explain to them, oh, if there's a runner behind you, they can just tag the base. That's called a force out. And they go, ugh, well, fine. Why didn't you tell me this? Whatever. So the next time they're up, they're on first base, and then somebody hits a pop-up, and the guy catches it and then tags first base. And they go, wait, why am I out this time? Oh, what even is tagging up? What, what does any of this mean? And then it just seems that this keeps happening and happening and happening until the point that they feel like the rules are being made up on the spot just to frustrate them. And I'm done playing and I don't want to play anymore. Charlie, hold it. Charlie, keep it down, please. <laughs> and this is all before they learn about things like the infield fly rule and the ground rule double or a passed ball on a third strike, overrunning first base, or before you know it, uh, this game went from being such a simple game to being one that is infinitely complicated, and they feel like they want to quit. Have you ever experienced 
this in your life? I definitely have. But after all, if you do away with the rules, if you do just simplify it down to that, then what's the point of playing? The rules of baseball are what make it baseball. If you remove the rule that the ball can't bounce before it hits the, gets to the plate and you change the shape of the bat, well, then you're just playing cricket. That's not baseball anymore. Rules give shape and identity to the game itself. Now, I'm sure that when baseball was first being developed in the 1800s, it had very simple rules. Just a bunch of people playing in a field. But then one day, something unusual happened, and they all had to kind of stop the game and say, well, wait a second, what do we do about that? And that's when a rule was born. And then another thing happened, and another thing happened, and another rule was born, and another rule was born. And with a game as old as baseball, they've had some time to create quite a few, a few rules. The official 2023 baseball rule book, by the way, is 192 pages, in case you're wondering. 192 pages of rules? Try to memorize all 192 pages of rules. The longer a sport exists, the longer the rule book will be, because the more obscure situations will have come up that will require a rule. So imagine, if you will, it's the 1800s, and you and your buddies are getting together to play a game of stickball, or whatever you're calling it at the time, and there is no codified baseball rule yet. So you get together with the people in your town to face the town next door, and you have to, before you start, say, okay, whose rules are we using? Because otherwise, you're just going to stop every single play and argue about who was safe and who was out, and you would spend all your time fighting and none of the time actually playing and enjoying the thing that you're doing. That's what games are about, right? They're not about the rules. They're about having fun. They're about playing. Agreeing on a set of rules and then following those rules frees you to actually focus on the sport itself. It frees you to actually have a good time together. So imagine now that you are an Israelite. <clears throat> Three months ago, you were a slave, working all day long on Pharaoh's construction projects. Your parents were also slaves. You were born into slavery. Your grandparents, they were slaves. Their grandparents, they were slaves. Hundreds and hundreds of years of your people have served Pharaoh. Your identity is wrapped up in Egyptian identity. You do not have an identity that is separate from the people who have enslaved you. Sure, you have stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You have stories of this promised land, but they are just stories. You don't have a whole lot of your own customs. Because you are here in Egypt, and the Egyptians, my friends, have the longest and richest history in the history of the world, almost. They had built the Great Pyramids of Giza over a thousand years before Abraham was born. The Egyptians had a written language, complex religious systems, and most of all, a sense of identity, something that the Israelites did not have. And so now here they are, suddenly, free, suddenly, a people who once were not. <clears throat> suddenly they have a God that is with them, performing miracles in the wilderness. Suddenly they have a purpose. Suddenly they are a people. And that's a lot to take in right away. If you talk to anyone who has been rescued from modern-day human trafficking, uh, they'll tell you that it's not easy to just readjust back to society. 
When your psyche has been so twisted in that way that you no longer see yourself as an independent human, but one who exists only in relation to another, something happens to a person. And it takes a while for them to regain that sense of self. I mean, abused people are more likely to return to abusive situations, partially because they believe that's who they are. And that's still who they are. So when the people are constantly complaining to Moses in the desert, begging them to go back to Egypt, or at least they knew where their next meal was coming from, it should come as no surprise. So how does God respond to their cries in the wilderness? He responds with rules. <laughs> but he gives them more than just rules. When Moses comes down from the mountain with those tablets with writing on them. He's not just bringing them demands of an unreasonable God. He's not bringing them uh, the moral code that has existed at the fabric of the universe from the beginning of time. He is, uh, no, <laughs> no, far from it. People often twist this passage in, uh, in that way and make God out to be this kind of mean daddy who just has a list of thou shall nots as if God is just this angry and unreasonable parent. But no, what God is giving them is something way more essential. God is giving them a sense of identity. Because these laws were not for the Egyptians. They were not for the Midianites or the Amalekites. They were not meant to be followed by the Ammonites or the Philistines. They were for Israel and Israel alone. And Israel didn't expect anyone else to follow their rules because it wasn't their rules. It was Israel's rules. It was a gift from God to help them create a sense of identity and purpose. It's what made them unique. It's what made, gave them meaning. This is what begins the long process of healing and transformation that takes a disorganized ragtag group of slaves and turns them into God's chosen nation. God was giving a disunified people something to unite around. He was bringing them together. He was giving them the basic rules of this game called how to live as an Israelite so that they could get busy with the business of living. And then as time went on and situations came up that were not in the original rules, God had to give them more specific rules to help them learn how to better play the game. If the Ten Commandments are like the basic rules of baseball that you explain to a newbie in a parking lot of a, uh, of a train stop, then the book of Leviticus would be more like rule 7.05B in the baseball handbook that uh, awards a batter a triple if a fielder catches a ball with their hat. Unique situations often call for unique rulings that sound very strange out of context, but make perfect sense if you're playing the game. So I wonder, friends, I wonder what if we took some time to rework how we think about biblical law. Many of us here in this space and this virtual space come from uh, religious spaces where the laws were used to beat us down and keep us in line. And our first inclination now that we are no longer in that place is to reject even the idea of the law. But what if we recontextualized it? What if we took a moment and thought of the law as a way of creating identity? 
What if we saw them as basic guidelines on how to play this game together? What then? What would our Ten Commandments look like if we reimagined them right now? And I don't mean that rhetorically, oh, you who are here in this space. Can we play around a little bit with this? If love God and love people, let's say that's the foundational truth behind Christianity, behind Judaism, behind nearly every single religion in human history, if that's our core foundational law, what other laws would you make to form a better spiritual community in 2023? Now, I don't necessarily mean civil laws. I don't want your ideas on how to reform uh, property tax and whatnot. I know, I know. Everyone in the room just went, ah, that's what I know. (laughs) I mean spiritual, religious commandments. Let's try to make our own Ten Commandments. What would you put in there? Love one another. Yeah, I mean, that's our foundational commandment, right? Thou shalt forgive. (laughs) Any other qualifications to that? As you would like to be forgiven is a nice way to put that. Trust first. Hmm. Keep your word is a nice rephrasing of thou shalt not commit false testimony against thy brother or however the King James puts that, right? Trust that everyone is doing their best. Yeah, or um, being trustworthy. What I'm thinking is that um, in the midst of an argument, if you don't get along, or you, um, it's it's easy to assume that people are out to get you, or that are Mm. just self-preservationists. Yeah. Um, But to trust, even if it's not true, but trust that everyone is doing their best with what they have. Mm. That's classic Brene Brown. I know. Yeah. <laughs> classic Brene Brown. Thou shalt listen to Brene Brown. Yeah. yeah. Well, and she, and she says that that may not be true, but it certainly helps my interactions with other people, yeah. right? Like if I, if I believe that everybody is doing their best, mm-hmm. then I can have more grace. Then I can. Absolutely. Maybe try to see another person's perspective. I, I think always, you showed that video, and I think that's, that's always yeah. stuck with me. Like, I, I try to live my life in such a way that I allow people to disappoint me. Where I don't assume the worst in people first. Even if I don't trust them, I try to let them disappoint me instead of just assuming it. Yeah, um, and I think if we're 
creating rules that form a community identity, assuming the best in people um, is a good rule, because I don't think that comes naturally to us. Yeah. And that's it something... The, right, like it doesn't mean assuming that they'll, they'll do the right thing. It just means assuming that they, if they're not doing the right thing, it's not because they want to disappoint you or because they're, bad they're doing because they're trying to be bad it's for right. any complex reasons but true sociopaths are pretty rare oh. yes. most people are actually doing what they think is best right, right. even if it's awful objectively awful be generous be generous can I point something out real quick sure. nobody has given a, a negative command yet. Most of the Ten Commandments are negative commands. You shall not do this thing. You shall not. They're, they're limiting commands. Um, you've all so far given um, positive commands of things you should do. Well, I was going to say normalize change. That feels a little bit more um, like neutral. Like change can be really scary, but normalize it. Normalize change. Thou shalt be helpful. Thou shalt be helpful. Hmm. I love that. <laughs> I wonder if there is a difference, though. Um, and I don't have an answer to this off the top of my head, but the passage says, uh, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. And Laura said, keep your word. Um, those are essentially the same thing. One is said in the negative. That's don't break your word. Don't be untruthful. This one says, be truthful. word is you made a promise and you follow through. Oh yeah, you're right with that one. But what if we were to, to say like um, speak truthfully of others. <laughs> speak truthfully, right? I like that. As opposed to do not bear false witness. What, is that, what does that do when one is framed in the negative and one is framed in the positive? I think when they're in the negative, it's a little bit more like like a fence. Like Here's where not to go. Here's the boundary. Here's where you know you're in the wrong. When you speak in the affirmative, you're giving like the target. It's more like here's what to shoot for. So it's 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 honestly like developmentally kind of goes along with that idea of the stages of spirituality or whatever. Where Israel was this little, uh, they were very immature in their ability to navigate, especially coming out of the situation they were in. And when a child is very young, you might say, do not touch the stove. Like, you're not speaking conceptually, like, touch safe things. No, you're like, I see danger here. Like, I see danger here, so I'm going to be very specific with what not to do. Whereas, as they get older, you give more principles of what to do, but you're not creating those tight boundaries anymore. And I mean, I think actually boundaries are really important in many contexts, more Brene Brown. But, um, but I feel like that's what God was doing with Israel was like, don't go here. 
like don't go to these dangerous places yeah. and then you see I think later in scripture more mm. affirmative like shoot for this and I feel like we're, mm-hmm. we're saying things that are like more like the, the, yeah I love that visual image that the negative laws are a fence to keep you from, from getting too far and the positive affirmation laws are a target. That is gonna, that's gonna play around in my mind for a while. I, I appreciate that image. I think too with the positive is it's an encouraging to do, to work towards something versus like, it just frames it differently. Like positive is like, hey, let's go for that. Like let's try to do that versus being always worried about don't do something. I think it's an encouragement to focus on outward focus. I mean, it's probably very similar. Mm. Like, yeah, defense and You're yeah. actively aiming at doing something versus like pulling back and making sure you don't do something. And it also seems when you focus on the negative like that, um, the first human response is, where are the loopholes? <laughs> right? So uh, do, not, do not kill is what it says, right? Or does it say do not murder? Because then what do we do about self-defense? What do we do about war? What do we do about this, that, the other? So when you say don't do this, well, or like respect, don't do work on the Sabbath, respect the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then the question becomes, well, what do you do if your donkey falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Because getting it out would be work but letting it die would, would be against other commands about the sanctity of life. So which one wins, right? And so when you frame everything in terms of the negative, uh, you end up just trying to find all the exceptions to it. But I love, who was it that said, yeah, it was, it was Laura, that um, it's really helpful with a young faith or with an immature faith, somebody who is just escaping out of something. I. I mean, it has been my experience that, uh, myself included, and, and others that have come out of something, maybe it's out of addiction or out of abuse, out of oppression, tend to migrate more towards a more legalistic faith. You know, Paul <laughs> is a good example of that in the Bible. Um, you tend to end up with uh, a lot more of a fundamentalist rule-based religion. And the people who have come out of Fundamentalist rule-based religions seem to come more towards the uh, the more expansive positive way of thinking. I wonder if uh, If there's a way that we can hold both (laughs) And allow both to be true and good and useful for times for people without it being a competition about who has the right truth You know, but who has the right truth in the moment that's helpful for you that people who are already struggling to have something else negative, it's like another hit. Whereas something positive is more hopeful or for, you know, I can do this rather than being hit with something else to deal with, you know. Yeah, it's already such a negative world and people are already hit with so so much negativity. Except everyone. Except everyone. 
can we, who they are or where they are? Can we unpack that a little bit? Um, because I'm definitely, I definitely love that for a faith community. Um, and then we get into situations where can we accept everyone? Well, we, at one point in another space, we talked about a no judgment zone mm -hmm. and found that to be very difficult. Very, very, very difficult. Very, very, very <laughs> difficult. Um, not that we didn't aspire to it, but in our own humanness, found that it was a very difficult thing to do. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't, as I said, aspire to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Should I? Should we accept the uh, the openly racist person who comes in with their? Uh, eugenics and, and whatnot. I like, struggle with that, but and I look at some people thinking, how could I ever, ever? But if we go with everyone's a child of God, then how can we not? Yes, exactly. That's that's the the tension that we're we're trying to tease out, right? But not accept the behavior. Like I was going to say, it don't accept all behaviors. What you mean by accept? Because you want the safe, the place to be safe as well. Yeah. Though so that's the same mindset that I would criticize in a church that says it's fine to be gay as long as you don't act on it. No, right. And I would, in in my current place where I am in my beliefs, I would say that's abusive and wrong. Um, but then I would also want to apply that to the person who's the white supremacist who's coming in, right? But wait a minute. No. Being gay is not outwardly harmful to other people. Theodore. Being a, a racist is harmful. So I, I don't equate the same yeah, at all. I think it goes back to the behavior versus the person. And I think it's very okay to say what behavior is or is not acceptable. And yeah, you're going to run into problems because there's going to be people who say that exactly about the issue of LGBTQ everything. Um, and I, I think that's just one of the hard truths. Of you, you, you can't say, like, we accept all behavior or all beliefs. It, it doesn't mean that you don't value the person as a child of God. But it's like when it comes to the space that you have authority over or that is your space, there has to be, at a certain point, a sense of, not here, like, doesn't take away from your humanity at all. It doesn't take, it, you know, I think, I, I just, I can't function if I don't distinguish between people and people's humanity and their behavior. I just can't. Yeah, I think you made a perfect statement last, I think it was last week, when you talked about Cavalcante and how the actions and the things he has done, then there has to be, I don't know what the wording you used. Reconciliation? Right, right. That, that just be, you know, some, you know, somebody does something terrible and um, there has to be that reconciliation before. Um, so it is that, you know, person behavior, repentance, or what, whatever. Mm. I wonder if, 
if I could add a negative command to this, our list, and say uh, something like, thou shalt not um, diminish um, your neighbor's humanity as like a guiding principle, where like, you are welcome, you are accepted, you are given grace, and we trust that you are trying your best. But at the end of it, if that then equates to diminishing somebody else, then that is, that's the line for me. Yeah. Right, I think it was, um, was it James Baldwin who said that we can agree to disagree um, on issues unless the issue is my inherent humanity and right to exist? something about guarding each man's dignity, I think. That's, guarding or protecting or... That's, um, they'll know we're Christians by our love. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. You're right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. We will work with each other. We will work hand in hand. Uh, and we'll guard each one's dignity and save each one's pride. That was two different verses. But yeah, yeah. Oh, was it? it okay. Was, yeah. yeah. Very good. Guard each man's dignity. Yeah. So maybe that's like so important that we put it in the negative. I like, do not. Yeah. There's the limit. Yeah. I think so many of us uh, uh, live the life and express the life that that uh, I sum, sum up in a few words what you said. You know, I, I accept you. But th that's not the life I want to live, and and the life that God wants us to live. I mean, that's where we're at in this world today, in in America. Yeah. So that's nine commandments. Does anybody want to round us out with ten? Thou shalt not root for the braves. I don't know. Live in communion with the earth. Hmm. Live in communion with the earth. I can get behind that. I think that um, that command, if you aim for that, will then overflow into many of the other ones. The book of Proverbs says that the, uh, the good person is good to their animals. Um, that's something Lisa and I have talked about. You can tell whether the, the true heart of a person by how they treat non-human beings. Uh, non-human persons, sorry. Um, and when you are learning to live in communion with the earth and recognizing that the earth is not separate from you, uh, that there is no outside, that there is no environment, that we are all one and the same, it does change the way you interact with your fellow human. So here's our Ten Commandments, if you will. Um, thou shalt forgive. Thou shalt trust first. Thou shalt extend grace to thy neighbor. Um, thou shalt keep thy word. Thou shalt be generous. Thou shalt normalize change. Thou shalt be helpful in all things. Thou shalt accept everyone as best as thou art able. 
Thou shalt not diminish uh, thy neighbor's dignity, and thou shalt live in communion with all of the earth. I could live by those. There's a nice combination of things to aim for and things to avoid in that. And if, if we did adopt those as commandments, as uh, a way of living, and somebody were to break one of them, they wouldn't be kicked out of the community. We wouldn't say that these rules apply to everyone all the time in all situations and all places. Um, some of these rules you don't even need to give to people. Like, can you imagine handing these rules over to a Lenape person and saying, thou shalt live in community with the earth? And they're like, wait, there's another way? That's just, that's just life. You don't need to write that down. And so if we were to adopt these rules, I think we would have grace for each other. We would see these as identifying markers that help us to better live out the everyday situations as they come up. Because sure, we love God, we love people, and everything else is just details, but we got to work out those details somehow, right? So it's, I'm so happy that you all are the sorts of people who think about these things and have brilliant answers to things. Um, because I don't think I could have come up with something that beautiful. <laughs>